Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 15A, Supplemental, Horatio Nelson. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope everyone is enjoying a festive holiday season. If you're like most of us up here in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope you're staying warm. If you're down in the Southern Hemisphere, well, boy, am I envious of you. But in all seriousness, with this week being the week of Christmas, as well as the majority of the celebration of Hanukkah for any of our Jewish listeners. And yes, I am recording this before Christmas and will publish shortly after, so I do apologize for the timing of the wording. I haven't had as much time to devote to an entire episode as I would have liked. And not to delve too much into the details, but my wife and I are hosting Christmas this year and with family and friends coming from literally all over the world. It has been a little hectic on my side to be able to give an entire episode the attention it deserves. Now, pretty raw in timing with Christmas being literally right around the corner, but hey, life happens, and I didn't want to leave you all empty-handed before we actually get into the famous Battle of the Nile, so I figured I could give you all a supplemental episode on one of the battle's major players, as well as one of the major overall players to our story, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson, 1st Viscount Nelson, 1st Duke of Bronte. Widely regarded as one of history's greatest naval commanders, and indeed as one of Britain's most heroic figures, Nelson, like many of our story supporting actors, deserves a podcast series all its own. So giving an entire rundown on his life in about 20 to 25 minutes is going to be difficult, but I figured we could give it a try. And my goal for the episode is to provide a rundown on Nelson up to the Battle of the Nile, where we will continue our story because from there on out, his life and Napoleon's will be inextricably tied until Nelson's immortalized death in the legendary Battle of Trafalgar seven years later. Okay, so with all that established, let's dive in to Admiral Nelson. Horatio Nelson was born in the small civil parish and village of Burnham Thorpe in Norfolk, England, on September 29, 1758, as the sixth of 11 children to Reverend Edmund Nelson and his wife, Catherine Suckling. Of distant nobility, Nelson was named after his godfather, the first Earl of Orford, Horatio Walpole, himself a nephew of Robert Walpole, who was generally regarded as the first Prime Minister of Great Britain. Nelson grew up in a church-going family, his father a priest in the Anglican Church, and Nelson remained a devout Christian throughout his life, often citing divine influence in many of his naval victories. Nelson attended grammar school until he was 12 years old, at which point he entered into the Navy. Serving first as an ordinary seaman and then a coxswain, that is, a petty officer who commands a large rowboat of a captain or admiral of the ship, under the command of his maternal uncle, Maurice Suckling, aboard the third-rate ship HMS Reasonable. Nelson would quickly begin to suffer from seasickness, a malady he would complain of for the rest of his life. So see kids, even the greatest of naval commanders can get a little motion sickness. At any rate, Nelson would quickly begin officer training and received his commission soon after reporting. After attaining rank, Nelson served a year in the West Indies in the British colonies of Jamaica and Tobago before returning to Plymouth in July of 1772, not even 14 years old, 
and having seen more of the world than most adults of his day would see in a lifetime. Under his uncle's tutelage, he spent his formative naval years commanding small boats that handled dispatches between ports and the larger ships docked offshore. And it was through one of these dispatches that he learned of an expedition to be commanded by English explorer and naval officer Constantine Phipps, which was to try and reach India via the North Pole, or the so-called Northeast Passage of Seaman fame. Now, Suckling arranged for Nelson to join the crew as a coxswain, and this voyage, later known as the Phipps Expedition, would be the first major naval action that Nelson would see as a sailor. Setting off in the summer of 1773, the crew reached as far as 10 degrees south of the North Pole, but ultimately had to turn back due to the thick ice and freezing conditions. As a side note, it was during this expedition that polar bears and ivory gulls were first described in writing, and legend has it that Nelson attempted to chase a polar bear down and kill it so that he could give the hide to his father. And, oh yeah, he was all of 15 when this supposedly happened, so what are you doing in your mom's basement? I'm joking, of course. But after returning to England, Nelson then headed to the East Indies to help escort merchant seamen from pirates as well as rebelling Indian subjects. And when the first Anglo-Maratha War broke out in 1775, Nelson worked in support of the East India Company and would see his first combat action when two small Indian catches attacked Nelson's frigate, the HMS Seahorse. And while the British would ultimately lose the war, Nelson would remain in India, escorting vessels and improving his navigational aptitude, when, in early 1776, Nelson contracted malaria and spent the next six months recuperating, nearly dying from the disease. He would then return to England, just in time for his uncle to be named as Comptroller of the Navy, allowing for Nelson to gain easy promotion to acting lieutenant aboard his newest ship, the HMS Worcester, which was getting ready to sail for Gibraltar. Now, most of our American listeners will obviously point out that it was during this time period that the British were involved in putting down rebellious colonists in the 13 colonies during the American Revolutionary War, and Nelson would take part in its lesser-talked-about Caribbean theater. After receiving his lieutenant commission, Nelson was appointed to the HMS Lowestoft, which set sail for Jamaica in April of 1777. The Lowestoft would capture several American merchant ships and press them into British naval service, one of which, Little Lucy, would be commanded by Nelson. Now, with the French entry into the war in support of the Americans, it meant that the British fleet now had more opportunities to seize both American and French vessels, along with all of their possessions, of course. Additionally, any ship that the British seized would be awarded prize money for the value of that ship, making many of the commanding officers who seized enemy vessels rich men. Now, Nelson would spend much of 1779 sailing along the Central American coast in search of enemy vessels before returning to Port Royal, the main British shipping hub in modern-day Jamaica. Now there, he prepared for assaults from French fleets, although none ended up materializing, and we once again scour the Caribbean, capturing numerous American ships, while beginning to develop a reputation amongst his senior officers as daring and well-versed in the art of sailing. Nelson would next see action during the San Juan expedition in 1780, where the British wanted to seize the strategic towns of Granada and Leon in western Nicaragua, essentially cutting the Spanish Pacific fleet off from their Caribbean counterparts, who were providing aid to the French and Americans, while also giving Britain vital access to the Pacific Ocean. The expedition consisted of commanders John Polson and the newly promoted Captain Nelson sailing up the San Juan River to try and seize those western port towns. 
And despite capturing the large fortress of the Immaculate Conception, disease and the brutal jungle terrain made the remainder of the journey difficult, and the British had to turn around in defeat. With 2,500 men dying and two ships being grounded, the expedition ended in complete failure and ended up being the costliest disaster for Britain during the entire American Revolutionary War. But despite this, Nelson was praised for his efforts, and the San Juan expedition would be the most notable achievement of his young career to that point, as well as his most notable contribution to the American Revolutionary War. And oh yeah, he was all of 21 years old. Nelson would spend the remainder of the war cruising the western Atlantic, making notable stops in Quebec, New York, reporting to Admiral Samuel Hood, who you'll recall from the Siege of Toulon, Port Royal, and the Turks Islands, where he attempted to land a small amphibious assault on a French garrison there. Now, the French repelled Nelson's assault, and he left in defeat once again, but it appears his intentions sat well with his superiors, especially as it became clear that the war was turning against the British. And indeed, when news of the peace reached Nelson in 1783, he returned to Britain, where he would spend a few months decompressing after spending the previous four years of war, battling disease, and evading capture by French shipping. Interestingly, Nelson would spend the last six months of 1783 in France, attempting to learn French, while the two nations were finally, at least for the moment, at peace. But Nelson soon received orders to return back to the Caribbean, this time in command of the frigate the HMS Boreas, where he was tasked to lead a crew to enforce the Navigation Acts in and around the island of Antigua. Now, the Navigation Acts are long and complicated, something we'll get into in a second here, but in general, they were a set of laws that regulated English trade and commerce between other countries and within their own colonies, almost exclusively as it pertained to maritime trade, but intercontinental trade as well. Now, the laws had been on the books since 1660, over 120 years prior to where we are in the story, and they had been amended so many times that many of the commanding British officers had differing interpretations of what the acts actually meant, making them difficult to enforce cohesively. But regardless of their interpretations, the acts were universally loathed by both American and colonial merchants alike, and when Nelson attempted to seize items aboard an American vessel, he was threatened with arrest, as the nearby island of Nevis was known to be sympathetic to the American shipping interests. As a result, Nelson was kept in a holding pattern on Nevis while the court sorted out his case, one which he would eventually win. But while he was on Nevis awaiting the court's decision, Nelson met a young widow from a local plantation family, Frances Fanny Nisbet, and he quickly developed an affection for her. Catching the attention of Nisbet's uncle, John Herbert, he offered Nelson a large dowry if he were to marry Fanny, to which Nelson ultimately agreed. But unbeknownst to Nelson was that Nisbet's family was not wealthy at all. To the contrary, they had amassed a massive amount of debt, and when the two were married, Nelson received a very small sum in comparison to what he had been promised. But perhaps more maddening to Nelson was the fact that Nisbet had concealed the fact that she was unable to become pregnant as a result of a womb infection she suffered during her previous marriage. And because this was the Georgian era, breaking off an engagement once it had been announced was considered extremely dishonorable, such that it likely would have put a metaphorical scarlet letter on Nelson's career, prohibiting him from additional promotion. But, of course, mistresses were okay, though. They weren't nearly as dishonorable. I mean, hey, what else are they there for, right? But one thing Nisbet did have was slaves. And her family was part of the older Antiguan plantocracy that had existed on the island since it became a British colonial possession. Now, as with most individuals of the time, 
it's just impossible to contextualize an 18th and 19th century society in the one we're living in in the 21st century. Right or wrong, society was vastly different than it was today. And as a result, we just can't compare the moral compass we have today as a society to what was guiding the people of the late 1700s. I'm not trying to stand here and defend it. Slavery was and obviously still is abominable. But people believed and acted differently then. There were entrenched hierarchies to the socioeconomic pyramid that was human civilization, particularly in classical Europe, and we have to acknowledge it. I'm not saying we have to like it, but to fully understand the stories of history, we do have to accept the darker aspects of our previous and past actors. Likewise, we can't always group history in a right or wrong or black or white category, as I've stated in the past. There is far too much gray, especially as it comes to individuals and their beliefs and their actions, many of which change over time. And as such, that is the case with Horatio Nelson with regards to the institution of slavery and his attitudes therein. Nelson's view on slavery is controversial, as his views did change depending on who you ask, both then and today. Now, there is an arguable evidence that Nelson was a strong proponent of the quote-unquote old system, that is, the established aristocracy, which would have included the use of slave labor in the colonies for a strong, prosperous economy. Now, sailing all over the world, Nelson had come into contact with slavery on a number of different occasions. And he, like many of the members of the aristocracy at the time in Britain, as well as in Europe, found it a necessary evil in order to fully capitalize on the lucrative sugar and coffee trade that fueled much of the British economy. Nelson also befriended numerous slave owners and often campaigned on their behalf in the court of public opinion back in Britain, giving them a prominent voice to a public that was becoming more and more abolitionist as the century turned. Having said that, many of the existing records of his supposed support of slavery came after his death, and many of the surviving letters that exist today have been alleged to have been forgeries, likely published by anti-abolitionist factions in order to further advance their cause during a time when emancipation was gaining considerable momentum in Europe. Thank you, French Revolution, until Emperor Napoleon comes along, but more on that, I absolutely assure you. Now, there are numerous instances that show Nelson to have been ambivalent towards slavery, but his actions seem to show that he was far less racist than many have led on. For example, any escaped slaves that were found by British naval vessels were pressed into service and paid in full, later to be discharged as free men should they survive any of the campaigns. In fact, the bronze relief of Nelson's column at Trafalgar Square in London clearly shows a black man, 23-year-old George Ryan, firing his musket at the French alongside a collapsed dying Nelson. He also arranged the freeing of 24 African slaves held by Portuguese ships off the coast of Palermo shortly after the Egyptian campaign in 1799, and during the height of the Haitian Revolution, he allowed Haitian generals to serve in the British Navy. Now, he was obviously understanding of the fact that their intentions were to end slavery, though it's likely he accepted their service as more to damage the French interests in the Caribbean rather than serve some noble commitment to abolitionism. Now, regardless... Nelson's views on slavery were not too dissimilar from the attitudes of the day. As I mentioned before, much of it depends on who you ask, but if you ask me, he was likely accepting of the institution, but would often exploit the manpower provided for his own personal benefit in his military campaigns. After all, a body is a body, right? And those are certainly needed in wartime. He understood it was a part of society, and despite his well-known vanity, did little to promote its continued practice or its total elimination. 
that had been there long before he was born, and it would be there long after he was gone. I think many men of the time believed the same way, continuing to do so until attitudes changed over the following decades. Now, with that established, let's get back to Nelson's oh-so-happy marriage to Fanny Nisbet. Nelson and Nisbet were married on Nevis just before Nelson's judgment came down, and Nisbet would return to England soon after Nelson left. But the marriage was rocky from the start, and the two never truly enjoyed a happy relationship. Nelson was, understandably, infuriated that he had been duped by Nisbet and her uncle, and the fact he would be unable to produce an heir with her likely left him scorned, especially since Nelson was known to be vain, even in his younger years, before all of his military glory. Nelson would thereafter take mistresses, and none was more famous than his open affair with Emma Hamilton, and we will introduce her in a second. You see, after Nelson returned to Britain, it had to have been boring for the poor lad. Having been at sea for nearly 20 years, Britain was finally at peace, and they didn't have the need for as many sailors or officers during peacetime. As such, Nelson received only half pay, and despite his cajoling, was unable to find promotion or command of any vessel during the late 1780s. Worse yet, he had to, get this, actually spend time with his wife, moving to and from different towns in England until they eventually settled in his childhood home of Burnham Thorpe. Dying of boredom, Nelson needed something that would get him out of the monotonous life every 30-something-year-old fears. But since you all have been listening to this podcast, you know where we are in our story. That's right, the late 1780s, and just as Britain was beginning to enjoy an extended peace for the first time in what seemed like 150 years, a bunch of enlightened lawyers decided to upend the entire established order in France and subsequently in Europe. Yep, it's time, once again, to introduce the French Revolution. Now, as you recall, the first three years of the revolution were not popular with Europe, but hey, at least the French still had their king as the head of government. But once it became clear that the revolutionaries were beginning to strip more and more power from King Louis XVI, invasion fear spread, and boom, the French Revolutionary Wars began. Now, we all remember that much of the initial fighting was done on mainland Europe and did not involve the British military forces directly. But when the French annexed the Austrian Netherlands, modern-day Belgium, considered by the rest of Europe to be a crucial buffer state, the British suddenly began to realize that they were about to be drawn into yet another conflict with France. And save for a few respites, they would be at war with France for the next 23 years. And as such, Nelson's services were once again needed, and the Admiralty recalled him to active duty and gave him command of the HMS Agamemnon, one of the most badass names for a ship, might I add, in January of 1793. On February 1st, France officially declared war on Great Britain, bringing them into the War of the First Coalition. Four months later, Nelson was sent to Gibraltar under the command of Vice Admiral William Hotham. Now, their main aim was to establish naval supremacy over the Mediterranean by occupying and taking command of the French port city of Toulon, which, again, as we'll recall, was a hotbed for French royalists anxious to be safe from the revolution by any means necessary, up to and including foreign intervention. The French Republicans then sent troops to try to retake the city and fortify their positions, and the city's citizens requested the British take control of Toulon for their protection, a request which was accepted and placed under the command of Admiral Hood. Hood then sent Nelson to the nearby kingdoms of Sardinia and Naples to request additional reinforcements and supplies, Hood now understanding that he would likely be in for a prolonged siege 
as a certain young artillery officer by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte began his march into the history books. Nelson would send dispatches from Sardinia to Toulon to help reinforce the British positions before arriving in Naples in September of 1793. He would meet with Napoli's King Ferdinand IV, as well as British ambassador to Naples, Sir William Hamilton. It was likely during these meetings and negotiating for troop reinforcements that Nelson was introduced to Hamilton's young wife, Emma. Now, we mentioned Emma Hamilton a few minutes ago, so let's give a quick introduction to the woman who would ultimately become the love of Admiral Nelson's life. Emma Hamilton was born Amy Lyon on April 26, 1765, in Neston, Cheshire, England, being raised largely by her mother as her father died when she was just two months old. First beginning work as a maid at age 12, Emma soon took to acting and modeling to garner additional income, and it was likely through these ventures that she began to meet older, powerful men, beginning her rise up the social ladder, mostly as a mistress, and most notably to aristocrat Charles Francis Greville. It was through Greville that she conceived her first child, but she fostered the child out on orders from Greville. The child, named Emma Carew, would be sent to live with Hamilton's great-grandmother until the age of three, at which point she was raised by a schoolmaster. Now, contrary to the orders from Greville, Carew did see her mother frequently as a child, but this soon ended once Hamilton and Greville became indebted. Hamilton then began to sit for a number of paintings for George Romney, one of the premier English painters in the late 18th century. Romney was a friend of Greville's, and Emma's natural beauty made her a celebrity nearly overnight. And Romney, for his part, became obsessed with the young Hamilton, at this point known as Emma Hart, painting numerous portraits of her in various poses, both clothed and nude. In 1783, Greville, now approaching age 30, needed a rich wife to help offload much of his debt, and having Emma as his mistress was seen as greatly hindering his chances of making that happen. So, naturally, he did what all young men in his position would do. He unloaded her on his maternal uncle, Sir William Hamilton, who had been recently widowed. Now, Greville sent Emma to Naples, ostensibly on a prolonged holiday, but in reality, he wanted her as far away from London as possible while he got married and his uncle got a new mistress. William Hamilton, 36 years Emma's senior, was smitten with her beauty, and he quickly fell in love with her. And Emma, for her part, was initially furious that she had been duped by Greville, but she came to enjoy life in Naples, becoming popular in the social scenes there. And after living for five years in Hamilton's apartment, Emma and William were married back in England on the king's consent. From then on, she became known as Lady Hamilton, and the two returned to Naples as husband and wife. Which brings us back to our story on Horatio Nelson. As the wife of an English diplomat serving overseas, Hamilton would greet dignitaries as they came into Naples. It was here that she met Nelson, who, after only five days, had clearly fallen in love with her. Now, I do want to get back into the story of Nelson, the naval commander, but their love affair was a huge part of Nelson's life, so here's how their relationship worked for the rest of his life. After four years of marriage, it was clear to all that William Hamilton was unable to produce an heir with Emma. Now, she had requested that her illegitimate daughter be brought to Naples to live with him and potentially be adopted by William, but he refused, along with other offers, to marry her to younger suitors. Now, five years later, in 1798, Nelson, fresh off of his victory in the Battle of the Nile, and spoiler alert, I know, returned to Naples a hero, but noticeably aged from the battle. He was entrusted to the care of Emma, and the two quickly began their affair under the roof of Sir William Hamilton. But what's curious 
is that William seemed open to the affair and apparently welcomed it. There are varying theories to this, but the three appeared to live out the open arrangement with relative benevolence. The affair was not kept secret, however, and news of it quickly spread across Europe. Nelson, for his part, though, seemed unfazed. He even wrote to his wife about how lovely Emma was, and when he was given an ultimatum by Nisbet to either choose between her or Emma, well, Nelson chose Emma. He and his wife would never truly reconcile and stayed married only to prevent the indignity of divorce in Georgian England. Nelson and Emma would exchange many letters while he was overseas, and their relationship would culminate in the only known child that Nelson sired, Horatia, in 1801. Now, despite their well-known affair and the all-but-in-name marriage they enjoyed, Emma was not privy to any of Nelson's estate after his death at Trafalgar. While popular at court and with the nobility of Europe, she was still nothing more than a mistress, and their daughter, Horatia, would never be recognized in his will, which went to Nelson's brother, William. Emma was not even allowed to attend his funeral, and her relations with Nelson's family would be strained for the remainder of her life. She died on January 15, 1815 in France, only months before Napoleon's final defeat of Waterloo to the hands of Britain's other national military hero, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington. So with Nelson's personal life accounted for, let's get back to his military exploits to wrap up this week and get us back to Egypt. Turning back the clock, after Nelson successfully negotiated the addition of some 2,000 men and several ships to assist Admiral Hood, Nelson returned to Toulon only to find it completely Napoleoned. Once Toulon fell in December, Nelson was ordered to Corsica, now under control of the British-friendly Paoli, so that they could still maintain a strong British presence in the Mediterranean. Nelson was ordered to blockade the French ships on Corsica until Hood could send additional ships to help reinforce their positions. The British then began their assault on the island in February of 1794, when Nelson was in charge of attacking enemy shipping and bombarding the coastal cities and towns. The fight for Corsica would last a grueling eight months, but Corsica would ultimately fall into British control. Nelson, while victorious, would not leave the island unscathed, however. On an assault in the city of Calvi in July, he was wounded in his right eye and would never again regain complete vision. Further still, while the British were successful in capturing Corsica, the island proved far more trouble than what it was worth. Their internal politics and repeated attempts by the French to recapture the island proved costly in resources and the British would ultimately abandon the island only two years later. It was, for all intents and purposes, a Pyrrhic victory. But the British still did have control of Corsica, at least for now, and Nelson continued to scour the Mediterranean for French ships while they continued their pursuit to retake this strategic island. Nelson was first sent to Genoa to help improve relations with the Republic as well as to acquire additional reinforcements. And while he was there, a large French force was heard heading towards Corsica, and after Nelson found out, he quickly turned around to try and intercept them. Now, while the French would ultimately be reluctant to engage with Nelson directly, a collision by two French ships allowed Nelson an opportunity to inflict the first strike, which he did by attacking the 84-gun ship of the line, Sarira, French, for it'll be fine, a reference to their revolutionary anthem. Now, while he was unsuccessful in sinking her, they were able to inflict considerable damage to her top ships, rendering them incapable of sustaining a long-drawn-out battle, such that when they engaged again two days later at the Battle of Genoa, Nelson forced the French to surrender and captured the 74-gun top ship of the line, Censure. The French were unable to make inroads on their plan to recapture of Corsica and abandon the mission altogether, 
returning to Toulon in defeat. But the situation, as we know, was different on the ground. This was all at the same time that Napoleon's first Italian campaign was happening, and when Napoleon's troops began assaulting the city, along with the strong revolutionary sympathies inside her walls, the British situation in Italy rapidly deteriorated. As a result, they were first to abandon their last loyal Italian port and were treated back to Corsica, unable to establish a beachhead for an amphibious assault to help relieve the Genoese. The first half of 1796 saw Nelson attempting to help further frustrate French shipping, but with the situation in Italy being what it was, the British shifted their focus to evacuating as many British nationals as possible, understanding that any stragglers would be treated harshly by the French armies once they completed their assaults in Italy. He would spend the rest of the year between London and Gibraltar, repairing his ship and recapturing French-allied Spanish frigates. Now, it was also around this time that the British handed the command of the Mediterranean fleet over to Sir John Jervis, another British naval hero who likely deserves his own episode, but for the purpose of expediency, was a respected disciplinarian and veteran of the Seven Years' War, the American Revolutionary War, and now the French Revolutionary Wars. Now, despite being in his 60s, Jervis was known for his fiery energy and navigational command, and he also proved to be one of the few older commanders in the French Revolutionary War's early years who did not employ massively outdated battle tactics. Now, though he is remembered today as one of Britain's finest naval commanders, he is seldom talked about today in the greater context of the French Revolutionary Wars, largely being overshadowed by the legend of Nelson. But the two would be inextricably tied at the start of 1797, after they won a major engagement against a superior Spanish fleet off the southwesternmost point of Portugal and of mainland Europe, the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. After spending Christmas 1796 in Gibraltar, Nelson would join Jervis's fleet off the coast of longtime British ally Portugal at Cape St. Vincent. Now, side note, as someone who has been to Cape St. Vincent, I highly recommend the stopover for anyone visiting the Algarve in Portugal. Seeing the power of the Atlantic Ocean and standing at the edge of Europe is honestly quite an experience. Anyway, while Nelson was tracking the movements of Spanish ships in the area, a large Spanish fleet was spotted towards the British positions on February 14th. Jervis, despite being heavily outnumbered and outgunned, decided to engage anyway, seeing any other option resulting in complete disaster. Now Nelson, commanding the 74-gun third-rate ship of the line, HMS Captain, was positioned towards the rear of the British line, and, realizing he would be unable to engage the Spanish directly for quite some time, disobeyed orders and wore ship. That is, a sailing maneuver whereby a sailing vessel reaching turns its stern through the wind, which then exerts its force from the opposite side of the vessel, allowing it to bypass the ships in front of it. Now, because of the force of the maneuver, wearing ship, also known as a jibe, is potentially dangerous for those on board. But, dangerous or not, Nelson engaged a Spanish van consisting of three ships, the San Josef, the San Nicolas, and the Santisima Trinidad. Now, with assistance from the HMS Colladin, the British and Spanish engaged broadsides, leaving the outgunned British ships badly damaged. However, the events led Nelson's captain alongside the 112-gun San Nicolas, and he then ordered his men to board the Spanish ship, famously crying, quote, Westminster Abbey or Glorious Victory. Stunning the Spanish crew on board, Nelson forced her quick surrender, and when the San Josef attempted to aid the San Nicolas, the two ships became entangled, leaving both immobile and allowing the British to board the San Josef's deck as well, capturing both ships. 
In a matter of hours, Nelson had captured two Spanish ships of the line, and by nightfall, the Spanish fleet retreated to Cadiz. Four ships in total would be captured by the British, and two of them were by Nelson's hands alone. Now Nelson, vain as he was, would greatly promote his victory afterwards, but Jervis would leave Nelson's name out of the official report of the victory as a result of his disobeying orders. Now, Jervis liked Nelson personally, and thus did not reprimand him in the way he likely would have had he been literally anyone else. But nevertheless, Nelson's personal reports circulated throughout British high society, and while Jervis would receive official recognition of the victory, Nelson had clearly won the public relations battle. Nelson would be promoted to Rear Admiral of the Blue on February 20th, and though unofficially related to the Battle of Camp St. Vincent, there was little doubt his actions that day played a significant role in his promotion. Nelson's next major engagement, and his first as admiral, came in the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife. After their successes off the Portuguese coast, Nelson was ordered to blockade the strategic port city of Cadiz in southwest Spain. Now, while capturing merchant ships heading to and from the Spanish-American colonies, Nelson schemed up a plan to take out the main stopover port of Santa Cruz de Tenerife, the capital city of the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco. His main aim was to capture the large amount of hard specie that was located on the island, much of it coming over from the Spanish silver mines in Peru and Bolivia. And in late July of 1797, Nelson ordered a combined force of naval bombardment and an amphibious landing to help take the city. But unfortunately, adverse currents prevented the latter, and instantly the element of surprise was lost. He attempted two further landings, but both were beaten back by the stronger-than-expected Spanish defenses. Even those boats that did manage to make it to shore, one of them being Nelson's personal boat, were met with heavy gunfire, and Nelson, almost immediately after stepping ashore, was hit with a musket ball in his right arm, fracturing his humerus bone in multiple places. He returned to British ship Theseus to be attended to, but, knowing the extent of the injury, pleaded with the surgeon to amputate his arm. The mission at Santa Cruz de Tenerife was a complete failure, and is often considered to be Nelson's worst personal defeat. Nelson himself wore the loss of his right arm as a constant reminder of the battle, and soon after its conclusion wrote to Jervis, quote, A left-handed admiral will never again be considered as useful. Therefore, the sooner I get to a very humble cottage, the better, and make room for a better man to serve the state. Despite the defeat, Nelson was well-received back home, and many attempted to place blame on other members of the British Admiralty, including Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger. Nelson would then return to London to recuperate. His arm would become infected after the central ligature was unable to be removed following the amputation, but in December of 1797, it fell out on its own, and Nelson soon recovered thereafter. Likely bored of the home life, he was eager to return to sea, and thanks in no large part due to his own self-promotion and great public sympathy, was given command of the HMS Vanguard and made its way south to reinforce the British fleet off the coast of Cadiz. And the British would indeed need reinforcements, because as the spring of 1798 began to blossom, British intelligence were gaining information that a large French force was beginning to be assembled in southern France. Where they were to be ordered to sail off to was still unknown, But Nelson, now part of the British Admiralty, was tasked to hunt them down. After the French left Toulon and made their way down the Italian coast and to Malta, Nelson would furiously chase after them, but they were unable to meet them head-on either time. But the third time would 
indeed, be the charm for Nelson and for the British. Because on August 1st, 1798, Nelson's fleet would finally discover that the French forces were anchored off Abacur Bay. And this, ladies and gentlemen, finally sets the stage for where we left off last week, the legendary Battle of the Nile. So we're going to leave Admiral Nelson here for now. Indeed, there is much more of his life that we have left out of this episode, and that's because his story is going to be tied with much of Napoleon's as we move forward. I think we all know how Nelson's story ends, but our way there from 1798 to Trafalgar will be full of adventure, deception, and tactical brilliance from both military geniuses of their own respective turfs. Or waves. (laughs) So join us next week as we intertwine the stories of Nelson and Bonaparte for the first time as they meet at Abercrombie Bay in the Nile Delta. Because next week, for real this time, we will dive into the Battle of the Nile, and I can't wait to tell you all about it.